Welcome to the Cowpark Bros Podcast. I'm your host, Terrence, and with me is your co-host, Jason, calling in from the Batcave in Indianapolis. Jason, how are you, my good man? Hey, man, you know what it is. It's another lovely day in the Cowpark Bros neighborhood. We're ready to get into it. I'm not Mr. Rogers. You're not Mr. Rogers, but guess what? It's still a beautiful day. Let's do it. Yes, sir, and it's too hot for sweaters any damn way. Uh, this is episode 73 of the Cowpark Bros Podcast. For the uninitiated, Cowpark Bros is the podcast to hear. We're a weekly podcast for fans of sports, current events, and entertainment. And as always, we are your hosts, Terrence and Jason. And every single Thursday, we come to you with a brand new episode. Where we discuss the current events of the day, sports, and the athletes we love. And even some of the athletes we love. No matter the topic, you can expect a brutally honest and fun exchange of snark while learning through the lens of our 30 years of friendship that originated in Calumet Park, Illinois. And folks, for more behind-the-scenes content... Make sure you check out the Cal Park Bros on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok under the handle Cal Park Bros or Cal Park Bros Podcast for more of the behind the scenes of the show. And just engage with us every single day. But as I always say, you cannot forget that the Cal Park Bros Podcast is available to listen and subscribe for free wherever you, and I'm pointing right at you, listen to podcasts. Like us, love us, share us, follow us. And folks, if you like us, hell, why wouldn't you? And folks, like Terrence always says, we are the podcast to hear and watch. Just make sure you're living it, loving it, and doing it. Yes, sir. Kicking off the show, we're going to start with some GOAT status and some GOAT talk um, and commemorate one hell of a run by one Serena Williams, Jason. Uh, Jason and I were discussing at what point did we talk about uh, Serena Williams and, for a matter of fact, to a larger extent, the Williams' sisters. Um, because I feel like you really can't talk about one without the other, uh, even even though, um, you know, Serena has passed Venus Williams in championships some time ago. I feel like they've been such a staple of all of these grand slams the last 20 years, man. Um, I really feel like I can't talk about one without the other. Um, and what a show. That Serena Williams put on her first, her her not a first, but her last go around at the U.S. Open, uh, even upsetting some higher ranked opponents. Um, so uh, first time you're going to talk about the you know hell of a legacy, um, and we wish Serena Williams the best in her future endeavors, man. Um, uh, Jason, some of my initial thoughts. What are some of yours? You know, I, I, in talking about this and getting ready for, to talk about it for the show. Of course, you have to think about just how long have the Williams sisters been, you know, in the public eye uh, of tennis, major tennis. And Serena in particular turned pro in October of 95, Terrence, 95, 27 years. Think about that. How, how many other tennis athletes in period, men or women, actually compete for 27 years? We were in high school, Terrence. When these, when these kids were about, who were about the same age as us or tearing the world up on the tennis court. A sport that wasn't, you know, the most inviting to people who, you know, were of color, or at least specifically weren't or black. And not to mention also where they grew up, Compton, California, <clears throat> excuse me, that alone in itself doesn't, you know, make a whole lot of tennis athletes. I mean, there are some, of course, but yeah. So yeah, all these things working against them, but yet, through the help of the parents, the encouragement and otherwise, they made the pro tour at those young ages, still teenagers. And they played against some of the other greats of the, of the, of the time and also some of the all-time greats as well. 
whether it be Steffi Graf, Monica Sellis, um, Martina Hingis, you know, other people like that. But I think their biggest legacy, which of course we can't help but mention, I know people always always say, why well, gotta make it about race? Well, whenever you're influential to other people who are the same race, to little girls like like who came behind them, that's why it's important. Yes, Venus and Serena are great because they're great tennis players, not because they're great black tennis players. That's true. But the fact of the matter is, with their the fact that they're in the public eye and the fact that they are so good at what they do on the tennis court. They're going to be influential when it comes to other black little girls who want to play tennis, no matter where they come up, come up uh, from, and where their you know where their background may be. Now, not to say that they didn't influence other girls who aren't black, because I know they did. Because there are many fans of Serena, Venus, Serena all around the world who aren't black, and I know several of them. So yeah, it's not about race, but let's be honest here. Again, who are they influencing to play the game of tennis? Who probably wouldn't have played before if it wasn't for these two. So I feel like that no matter what they did on the court, no matter what you, the, the goal status you can talk about, which is debatable, I know, but that that's one thing that can't be denied. So again, they've already been around for 27 years, so it's very possible there are people playing tennis right now because of Venus Serena. Again, they've been around 27 years. That's that's crazy ridiculous if you think about that, Terrence. 27 years. That's crazy. But those are my initial thoughts. Um, I have a question which you may be able to answer anyway. Do you think she's the clear-cut goat of women's tennis? Again, like I said, it could be debated based off stats, um, but I know that can go beyond that sometimes. But with that being said, what what are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. I think some of it is is subjective anyway. Of course it is. Um, And I know there was – Jason, I don't know if you heard about this. There was a – an Australian uh, women's player, Margaret Court, who was basically taking this opportunity uh, during Serena uh, Williams's uh, victory lap to basically say, hey, she didn't get the shine that she deserved. Um, and, and and basically making reference to the fact that, you know, she admired and respected Serena, but she didn't think that Serena admired her. Um, and I think there's probably something cultural about that. And what I mean cultural, like I feel like there's certain players uh, within America that perhaps like tennis legends, like Billie Jean King, for example, who was involved in the battle of the sexes, the tennis match from years ago. So I think it's really a cultural thing. I think it's, you know, there are American women's tennis legacies, um, legends, if you will, that that maybe kind of gravitate more towards Serena Williams and Serena Williams in turn gravitated more towards them. Um, but I listen, she she won a damn Grand Slam while pregnant. Like <laughs> it's 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 hard to say. Okay, <laughs> sh- show me a cooler trick. Show me a cooler accompl- a cooler accomplishment. Um and and yeah, she didn't get the overall record, but I look at that the same way I look at Tiger Woods. Like Tiger Woods technically didn't, you know, get the all time record for uh tournament wins or grand slams, but his dominance and Serena's dominance 
there there are there are there are some com- comparisons to be made there and i judge greatness off of okay how many people didn't get did basically didn't get a, a whiff at at a championship while you were at the top of your game and it's hard to argue you know aside from you know injuries when Serena was at top, on the top of her game, it was, you were going to be hard pressed to to beat her in a tournament. So <clears throat> now, obviously, during this time frame, there are people you know watching the U.S. Open, knowing she's going to retire whenever she loses. Uh, of course, a lot of those posts and pictures would not say that, you know the goat this, the goat that. Uh, I'm not here to argue one way or the other. To be honest with you, uh, one thing I would say is that our Whenever someone's saying that, are they educated enough to be saying that when it comes to how well do you know tennis to say that? Like, whenever they have the conversation about Jordan or LeBron being the GOAT, although people may disagree with whatever you say, I feel like people are probably more knowledgeable about basketball for them to be able to say that. Like, if you and I had that conversation, you and I know basketball pretty well. How well do we know tennis, Terrence? I think I I know tennis pretty well because do you, I've... Do you know, how well do you know it compared to basketball? I, or, f- or I, football, whatever. I enjoyed, I've watched these rec- recreationally. Like, I was watching okay. tennis. Like, I was watching tennis, you know, when Martina Navratilova was playing. I was watching tennis when Monica Sellers was playing. I remember where I was when I heard she got stabbed. Like, I was watching French Opens with 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 pretty much consistency when I was a kid. I've always enjoyed the game. I think the game's been marketed well. Um, and I thought, yeah, like I really enjoy, I really enjoy enjoyed watching tennis, you know, in my in my in my teen years. So yeah, I feel like I got a pretty good pulse on this. Okay. Again, that wasn't by the way, that wasn't trying to be an I gotcha moment or a call you out moment. Just I was just really asking. Because it'd be like I said, a lot of people say that again, Serena's the goat, which may or may not, not be true. I'm not gonna not going one way or the other. But especially for those who didn't follow, follow tennis back in the day, back in the 70s and 80s, yeah, you might know Martina Navratilova. You mentioned Margaret Court. Do you know anything about her? The lady that actually has more Grand Slam Finals wins than Serena. I know she's mad at hell this week. That's all I know. <laughs> well, I, well, I don't know nothing about that. I didn't see nothing about it. Doesn't really matter. Um, now, I'm not sure there's a personal thing between those two. I have no clue. But, yeah, Margaret Court has more Grand Slam finals, has way more wins. As far as wins-wise, Serena was only like seventh. So it's kind of like, okay, what are we basing it on to say that she's the GOAT? So um, the only thing, I, like I said, say to that is if you're going to make that claim beyond what you're seeing in front of you now, know what the hell you're talking about when it comes to, okay, this is why she's the GOAT over this person, over that person. You know, and I know we always say errors in like basketball and football and baseball are different and it's hard to compare them. Well, is this any different? You know, um, like I said, Mark Court, ha- Mark Court has 129 wins, which is about more than 40 more than Serena. Despite the fact that Serena has been around for 27 years and Margaret Court is only playing for 17. Now, again, I'm sure people can make, and I, I'm sure it's been made about the errors are different, not as many good players back then. Guess what? I don't know. I'm not a tennis expert. 
And that's why I say I'm not very comfortable saying who's a GOAT or who's not in tennis. Now, definitely Serena has to be in the conversation, honestly, because of the fact, again, the Grand Slam total, she's one behind Margaret Court. So um, just my thought on that. But one last question, for me at least, for now. What do you think will happen now to the game of tennis, women's tennis, now that Venus and Serena both are going to be retiring? Venus, I don't think it really made the official like Serena did, but something she said in regards to walking off or walking away, she's retiring. Like I said, for the last 25, 27 years, we've had these these these, these athletes in the women's tennis. What, what stars do they have in the game right now besides those two? Superstars, we'll say. On the men's side, you still got three or four. Now that they're gone, so I guess my question was, what do you think women's tennis is going to be now, now that perhaps the two last superstars on their side are now retiring? I think, uh, one, it depends on a few things. There's always going to be somebody new to pick up the mantle, right? Um, Maybe. I look look at a Coco Golf, for example. I look at a Naomi Osaka, it, but but a lot of that's in flux. You know, Naomi Osaka, you know, well documented some of her mental health issues. Um, there's no telling um, if we've seen the best from Naomi Osaka or the best is to come. But I look at there's always going to be the new school, and there's always going to be a, that next group of players to take that mantle. That and that's regardless of, of any sport. And so just just and just like and it's it's the same on the men's side, by the way. You know, prime example. At one, you know, I watched a lot of tennis in the 90s, and so I was a big I was a big Andre Agassi guy, fan. Um but as as time went on, you start to see a guy like Roger Federer come along. And then sooner or later, you see a guy like Rafael Nadal come along. And then sooner or later, you see a guy like uh, Novak Djokovic come along. And so to me, it is incredibly cyclical that there's always going to be the next great big thing. I mean, yeah, there's go- I mean, like, I mean, like, again, so there's going to be somebody to, to take the mantle, like you said, as, okay, who is the biggest star superstar in the sport? But I guess my question was really, I agree with you when it comes to, you know, the Agassi Sampras era or even the McEnroe. Um, uh, I, can't, I can't think of the guy's name, but, you know, the era's changed. Yes, there's always somebody to come in and take over as being one of the goats or whatever, or the next Hall of Famer. But again, in the 27 years that they've been around, for at least for the last few, there doesn't really seem to be that person that's going to be able to do that. And again, that person may come out of nowhere. Maybe once that shadow of the William sisters is gone, maybe that means somebody else can make their own shadow. Uh, but I just, and again, like I mentioned, some of this may be just my lack of tennis, tennis awareness. But just even in watching the tournament, the U.S. Open tournament, and look at the list of names of the people that are in it, it's kind of like, well, who is this? Who is that? I never heard of this person. She's ranked number two. Who is that? You feel me? And I feel like even back in the day, even though we didn't watch tennis, we knew the names of, again, Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, Martina Hingis. Um, uh, and for even though she might have been, not have been a good, as good of a tennis player, Anna Kornikova, you know, p- people like that. We know the names. 
and it wasn't because of lack of media, obviously. I mean, it's 2022. That obviously, there's plenty of media around. And that's what I'm saying. Yes, there's Naomi Osaka. But like you said, with her mental health issues, is she going to be sticking around in tournaments enough to build that superstardom up, to, to win matches and tournaments and be reliable? So, yeah, that's my point in that. So we'll see. What, what are your final thoughts on this topic, sir, if anything? Um, yeah, I just thought it was really neat that we as a community rallied behind Serena this last go around. I know them tickets was ridiculous at the U.S. Open. And I think it's really neat that Serena Williams got her flowers while she was still, you know, present. And, you know, you see some of these athletes, they limp on their way out. They're miserable on their way out. I love that, you know, this this brand of athlete, they're ready for the next stage. You know, Serena's been already building a brand, you know, you know, post-tennis. And not just that, but motherhood. Who knows? Maybe she wants another kid. So that's cool. I think I appreciate what she brought to the game, to the culture, and I think we're all better for it. Thanks. All right. So that concludes our segment on the Serena sign-off. And coming up next on Calpar Bros, we're talking about this uh, new lift lawsuit. Jason and I are fresh out the segment discussing the legacy of one Serena Williams. Coming up next, we're going to talk about some more rideshare shenanigans. Uh, apparently, there's been some uh, new uh, class action lawsuits with the ride-sharing uh, company Lyft. Jason, they, this is going to sound like shade on Indy, but you've done ride-sharing before, correct? Yes, as a passenger and a driver. Absolutely. So have you used Lyft more or Uber? And why? As a writer, more recently, I've been using Lyft a lot more. Um, to, to be honest with you, I don't really have a valid reason. Um, I just see, it seems like it's a lot cooler of a service. Um, seems like it's a lot more available, I think, weirdly enough. Um, plus, I've been trying to avoid Uber Eats, you know, so, so I figured Lyft would be a lot better to, to use. So, so there you go. So there's no, uh, there's no Leets equivalent? Not not yet, but you just gave him that idea. So watch out for that, son. Tra- get that trademarked quick. Ah, <laughs> oh, jeez, I'm having way too much fun with that. Um, so back back to these lawsuits, dog. Um, I know that basically the uh, the crux of this lawsuit 
um, is that, or lawsuits rather, um, that there were 17 new lawsuits by users of their service from around the country who claimed that the company failed to protect passengers and drivers from physical and sexual assault. Um, now, of those 17, 14 of them were from people said they were sexually assaulted while using the app, and three said they were physically assaulted. Um, and there was a news conference where basically five of these uh, plaintiffs shared their stories. Now, I'm, I don't want to read verbatim some, some of what was shared, but I do think it's important, especially as ride-sharing apps have become more prevalent, um, that there is some sort of accountability across the board for both riders and drivers. But I did th think one bit of, of the, the conference was telling, which is one of the attorneys representing the users said that it was clear that the company did not care about its passengers or drivers. The thing Lyft is most concerned about protecting is their own profit margins. The attorney also claimed that Lyft's policy on not sharing user information after an assault without a court order creates a major obstacle to even the most basic criminal investigations or civil protective orders. Lyft is on the side of the perpetrators, not the victims, said the attorney. What are your thoughts on that, Jason? <laughs> My thoughts on the whole thing or that statement that Lyft that little, more? That, that little quote right there that... You can't, do you think it's acceptable that you can't get user information after an assault without a court order? Do you think that's acceptable? And in general, what are your thoughts on these lawsuits and sexual and physical assault allegations? So regarding that little blurb part, I uh, definitely get the sentiment of we're trying to investigate a uh, criminal case. But then I also kind of wonder what is in Lyft's privacy um, acts or what uh, privacy policies for its users to say, hey, we won't release your information unless we are ordered to do so by the court of law. So if that's in there, I I don't know if it is or isn't. Um, I didn't think about it really that till right now because I agree with you. That does seem kind of silly that they wouldn't, you know, just hand it over knowing it's an investigation. But again, if, if, if it's in their privacy policy that they can't, then that, that may be why. That's the only only valid reason I can think of as to why they can't or wouldn't do that. Because you would think that, especially especially since, from what I'm reading, it appears to be some of the drivers of Lyft are the ones who are being victims of the sexual assault in particular. So you think you would think that they would be quick on and on the side to protect their drivers, even though they're not employees. But still, you think they'd be quick to protect them and help them out, knowing of what they happened. I mean, there are some people that said they had panic att panic attacks from getting groped um, uh, by passengers, uh, things like that. People are left bleeding from physical assaults uh, from from uh, from passengers or other way around. Um, so that alone, you think you know, just from a PR standpoint, you want to get on top of and just show that hey, we're all about protecting the safety of our passengers and our drivers. We're going to stay on top of this. We're going to make sure that we do our part to make sure this person gets punished to the full extent of the law. But they're not doing that. So um, now I will say this. When I, when I first kind of read the headline of this NPR article, new lawsuits say Lyft failed to protect its users from physical assault 
and sexual, physical and sexual assault. My initial thought was, well, what does Lyft supposed to do? Yeah, there are people like, you know, the drivers, drivers obviously do background checks and whatnot, so they're, so they're covered. But do we do background checks on passengers using the Lyft and Uber? No. Should we? Or should they? Maybe. Maybe they should. But short of that, what really can Lyft do in regards to making sure that, you know, stuff didn't happen? Those are my initial thoughts when I read the headline. Then I read into what it was really talking about. It's like, oh, okay. So, yeah, so really, there's, if you're not going to do background checks, nothing you can do to pre-check people. So then, so then you really have to be on top of it when it comes to something, when something actually happens. And if you're not even doing that, then that's where you're going to open the door for these lawsuits because you're basically not doing, from the, from the perspective of the victim, you're not doing a damn thing to help us, help our drivers. Now, I didn't drive for Lyft. I drove for Uber. But still, I was very fortunate that nothing happened to me when it comes to, to physical assault or nothing like that. Uh, and I'm sure the experience may be different for a guy than a, than a female. But again, looking back on it and, and considering what could have happened, because I, w- I, I wasn't driving a cab, I didn't have like any partition protecting me. It's pretty much me in the driver's seat and somebody in the back seat, be it right behind me in the middle or, the, or on the other side in the back, that I'm not paying attention to. So they can easily pull out something and hurt me, whatever. So I recognize how fortunate I was for all the time I did that in both St. Louis and in Indianapolis, then nothing happened to me. But if something did, I would want to know to go to Uber or Lyft in this case to say, hey, this happened to me. I'm pressing charges. What are you doing to help? The police need information from you. Are you going to give it to them? And if I've come to find out that they're not going to give it to you without a court order, I'd probably be sure as hell be wondering, well, why the hell not? So from the victim side of it, I certainly get it. But I would definitely need some more perspective, which I can maybe look into while you know, while you're at the talk next to see what reasoning would Lyft have to kind of be hesitant at all to not be quick to help out any investigation when it comes to any type of crime going against their drivers or passengers. Well, the one thing that I thought about when I first heard about the, oh, well, they won't give up this information without a court order. Most companies, when law enforcement is involved, will hand this stuff over. They may not just hand it over because Joe Schmo, uh, you know, Saul Goodman, attorney at law, says, hey, I need this. And I wonder if that's the difference in when Lyft will give this information out. Another thing that I thought was interesting is that this is something I actually didn't know about um, until literally yesterday is that Lyft has a policy where you can actually uh, order a ride for somebody else, which of course has the one interesting byproduct of, yeah, I put, I put in the order for the, for the, for the, for the ride, but I'm not the person actually in the car. And God forbid, if I happen to do this for the wrong person and they start, (laughs) start making an ass out of themselves. See what I'm saying? Now, something I thought was also interesting is that these attorneys and victims were also proposing that cameras be installed inside all Lyft vehicles. I don't even think Uber has all that. I think Uber pretty much says, hey, if you, the driver, want to do that, you're welcome to do that. But what these uh, attorneys and victims are stating is that they want it to be official Lyft policy. 
So it's effectively part of the kit <laughs> if you decide to ride it going forward. How we share your information on a need to know basis. We may also share your information as follows with portal providers, which we use to collect and process your information and with other services providers that provide us services and tools related to managing our recruiting and hiring practices with your references, prior employers and other organizations to identify you so they can provide a reference uh, within a corporate group, within with regulators, courts, law enforcement, tax authorities in course of litigation or with other entities and circumstances where the company is under an obligation to do so by law. Now, that last one, and this is from the, the Lyft website, and this is the Lyft, now this is more for drivers, but this is for the Lyft candidate privacy policy. Like I said, last one, with the regulators, courts, law enforcement, tax authorities, in course of litigation, or with other entities and circumstances where the company is under obligation to do so by law. So basically they're saying they're not gonna share information essentially, unless it's required to by law, i.e. a court order. So again, even though though that's specifically for drivers, the rider policy is is similar. So that goes into what I was saying before, that they're probably not going to share information willingly unless a court says, hey, you got to do this. You got to give it up. We need this. So now... I guess the question should be is where's that line of, you know, comply with applicable law or other obligations such, you know, stuff like that. Is is the fact that there's a case good enough? The fact that an incident happened, is that enough for you me to get the information up or does it have to be court ordered to do so? Based off what we're talking about in this article, it seems to be the latter. So, like I said, if they're following their own policy is what it is. Be mad at the policy, which is fine. Maybe there's something they'll change out these lawsuits, depending on how they play out. You all know how that goes. Sometimes when people get sued and lose, that's when they start changing policies, changing rules. So definitely something to keep an eye on, see how things change for Lyft after this. Because I'm sure if they lose this lawsuit, they're not going to want to get sued again for the same thing. So there is that. Yeah, I... I am curious to see how this lawsuit, these set of 17 lawsuits plays out. And I'm curious to see if there's any changes adopted by Lyft as a result. Well, like you mentioned, it's a class action. Well, I don't know if I want to call it class action, but it's basically multiple people, you know, 17. Yeah, I, I, I fucked that up. It's not a class action. It's basically 17 people saying, hey, we we we, we got beef. <laughs> but but it's, it's definitely a fairly fair amount of beef. So, um if they lose, I'm sure the payout will be somewhere in probably the, you know, close to a hundred millions of dollars. Uh, again, the 17 people, you know, each one of them, each one of them gets 5 million or, you know, 10 million. There you go. Um, and again, you can go back to any lawsuit done by any major corporation. Whenever they lose, they're going to, they're going to make changes. I mean, cause again, if you got sued for it. You'd be kind of stupid if you got sued for it again and didn't change anything the first time. So now, but obviously, but I get the, the more important change, like you were mentioning before, is the changes they'll need to make when it comes to procedurally. Okay, like you said, are we now going to require cameras in everybody's cars if you are going to be driving? Are we going to start requiring background checks for those who do choose to be riders? Are we going to make it? Are we going to make it against the rules now to get rides for someone else? Because that's actually a very good point. When I was Uber driving, people would do that a lot. 
And I have to say, you're not supposed to do that, especially when it comes to adults getting rides for kids. Not supposed to do that. I've actually had to tell somebody, no, I'm not doing that. What do you, what do so, you mean? What happened? Like, like what happened? So, so basically, obviously, you know, when you're a driver, you get the little buzz say, hey, somebody needs a ride. It, it doesn't tell you where they're going. It just tells you, you know, the person's name, where they live. You go there. And that's it. So obviously when I go there, I'm expecting to pick up, you know, we'll say Joe. I seen an adult come out of the house with, with, with kids in tow. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be a parent and one or two of his, uh, of, of his kids. Well, no, what he was doing was getting a ride for the kids and having me take kids from point A to point B. I have no clue who was at point B, no clue who's at point B. All I know, that's where I was taking them. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Number one, I'm not supposed to by, by Uber rule. Two, I'm not doing it out of common sense because if something were to happen to those kids, then I'm partially reliable to it too. Whether, whether it's, you know, or if I get accused of doing something, then that's going to be another problem because I have no evidence to, to refute that I did anything wrong, did or didn't do anything, uh, anything you know, to, to or with those kids. And I'm like, no, not doing that. Three, I have no idea where they're going. So if they're going somewhere they're, somewhere they're not supposed to be or going somewhere doing some legal stuff, I'm complicit in that as well. Either not necessarily from a law side of things, but yeah, but that's what I'm referring to. People will order rides for other people. If there's another adult, that's one thing. But yeah, if they're clearly minors, no, this not it's not no, I'm not doing that. Sorry. So is that so that's that's a good point. Are they gonna stop allow disallowing that? I feel like that one's probably the one that's probably not gonna happen. But that's definitely it should. Not just for any physical or sexual assault reasons like like we're talking about in this article, just for liability reasons for, for the drivers. And again, I'm pretty sure Uber has a policy in place that, that you have to be a certain age to be riding by yourself. I'd say, I don't care what that age is. If it ain't 18, you're not riding the car with me by yourself in the story. It is wild. How many parents are actually okay with that? I mean, from, I said what I got to say, my opinion on that from a parent side of things, if your kids got to get somewhere, you don't have a car, you're going to do what you got to do to get the kid there. I get that. But as an as an adult rider, adult, uh, excuse me, adult driver using my own car, I still have control right over my car. And if you're not getting, if I don't want you in the car for whatever reason, you're not getting in. Whether you're a drunk adult, whether you're a kid doing whatever, I have the right to say no. Get out of my car. And we see videos of that online all the time. Drivers saying, "No, I'm not giving you a ride. I'll give you your money back, but get out of my car." Fortunately, the incident that I I just brought up didn't. Didn't turn out to be a big deal. Just another, just other than the parent being mad. But I'm like, yeah, no, this ain't, that's not happening. Nope. So that's what I'm referring to, sir. I also think it's interesting, especially when it comes to like, you know, user ratings, rider ratings. Like mm -hmm. they, there, there is a little bit of accountability in that, in, in, in that, if you have a bad experience with a with a rider, you can effectively address them um, by knocking down their rating. But how are you gonna knock? Well, I mean, other than knocking down, like, hey, this person wasn't who they said they were, but this person had tried to get me to take their five year old to Taco Bell. <laughs> I assure you, I was not taking them to Taco Bell. They, they didn't ask for that, but but yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, but like I said, desperation sometimes people do silly stuff, but but yeah. All right, that concludes our Lyft lawsuit segment. Uh, coming up next on Kelp Our Bros, we're we'll going to be talking about the NCAA football playoff expansion.
Welcome back to Cal Park Bros. Jason and I are fresh off the Lyft lawsuit segment. Coming up next, we're talking about the college football playoff expansion. And Jason, what's wild is we all knew that college football playoff expansion was coming. What I don't quite understand is why they're going from four teams to 12. Like, whatever happened to the four to eight? Or even four to six, for that matter. I mean, I get it that they were going there. Clearly, six was not going to be big enough of a of a of a squeeze. The juice was not going to be worth the squeeze to go from four to six. That's just why say I money, said, just, just say just say money grab. It's a, it's a money grab. Clearly, let's let's go. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off, but I did. I mean, I mean, keep going. I mean, what what are some of your initial thoughts as they've decided to go from four to to twelve? Well, I mean, it's I have a number on this as well, but it's clearly a money grab. Like like I said, there obviously the talks and rumblings have been around of hey, we need to get more than four teams in this. Should we make it six? You know, give the first two teams a buy or whatever have you. Should we just double it and make it eight? They skipped all that. Or should we go? With the, should we go with the top ten? Put them in the playoffs. Well, they skipped all that. Said you know what, we're going from four to twelve. Now, I'm going to go into you know some of the logistics when it comes to just how good a number 12 team was going to be for this playoff. We'll go into that. But like I was saying before, it's clearly a money grab. Now, obviously, the college football playoff already alone with just four teams, huge money, huge dollars for the college football playoff board organization. Not the NCAA, by the way. As I've said before, the college football playoff is not run by the NCAA, FYI. But I did find an article from uh, sportsmedia.com and they're projecting that with the expansion of four to twelve, that the college football playoff board or what have you is going to net about two billion dollars every year, just from having twelve teams in the playoff. Now I don't know about you, but I think any organization out there, whether it's sports, entertainment, uh, selling rock salts on the street, I, I think, I think anybody would be happy making $2 billion from what's probably going to amount to being a month of work. Hell, I'll take $2 billion bucks for doing a month of shows for the Cal Power Bros. Give my money, Terrence. But yeah, that's, that's clearly what it is. I, I don't think anybody can see it as what it is. Now, from a, a fan perspective, everybody that knows me, I'm a fan of Michigan football, the Wolverines. Hashtag go blue. Terrence likes Notre Dame. Two teams that are routinely... Well, two teams that should be in the mix of the playoffs a while, especially now that with expansion to 12. So from a fan perspective, I'm happy to see this because now I don't have to rely on Michigan getting into the top four just to make the playoff. I'll, I'll say that, be, keeping it real. But it is pretty silly from a competitive standpoint. I'm going to go into that, but I'm going to let you jump back in to go from four to 12. What are some of your thoughts on that additionally, sir? Uh this has very little to do with competition, and I say that as a Notre Dame fan. I mean, Notre Dame's kind of a weird setup because they don't really have a conference anyway. I mean, clearly, they're going to be one of those at-large teams. Didn't they join a conference in football, though? Was that basketball? I mean, they've been a, a part of a conference in basketball for some time. Okay, Just so a matter of, Okay, sorry. Yeah. My apologies. But... but 
and we should probably talk a little bit about like how basically they're going to have the six major conferences and then the the six at large bids if you will but go for it but to, but to me, to me, it, it makes a little difference. Like Notre Dame was going to be in the top 10 no matter what. Notre Dame, because of who Notre Dame happens to be historically, was going to be on the cusp of being in the top 10 to 12 teams anyway. So to me, it doesn't change anything. It just makes It just makes those more middling teams, you know, those hypothetical scenarios we talked about where a team could go eight and four and possibly win the championship. I mean, it's unlikely, but you get, you get to feel good and say, Hey, I was at least in the running. If that, if that helps, it helps you. Um, But from my perspective as a Notre Dame fan, it doesn't do anything for me. Uh, Like Jason said, it's already a land grab. uh, And you're just elongating the postseason. Like the endeavor to continually expand this damn thing out, it's like adding another blade to the damn Mach uh for, to to the damn Mach Five uh blades. Like it's ridiculous. Alabama is still going to be Alabama. You still have you still have to go through the best of the best, and I'm not even saying that or s some other SEC equivalent. You know, there's one other aspect out there I thought about, but I'll hold off on that for a second. But like I mentioned before, um, personally, I, I, and I've said this before, that even they announced the whole 12. I even said that having eight teams in the playoffs might be a little too much because the football regular season, depending on what conference you're in, may range between you know, 11, 12, 13 games. And, and, that, and depending on the conference, it may include your conference uh, championship game. So pretty much you know, we always look at the teams that lose zero games or one game as like the elite of the elite and they definitely deserve to be or have a shot to play for a national championship. Typically, that's only typically it's only four teams, maybe five, maybe six. Once you start getting the seven and eight, you start getting in the weeds of okay, this team really deserved to win a championship or play for a championship. Now you have seven, eight, you have nine, you have ten, you have eleven, you have twelve. And I was going back over the last few years looking at the the final rankings for the college football playoff, and every and every time, every year, there's always been a team with three or four losses on the record, at least one, maybe two, sometimes three. And again, like you say, like you just said, maybe a launch out that they, that they win the national championship, but it's still a possibility because I, I believe in this format, a team would only have to win three games, I think, to win the championship, which is less than six or seven compared to the NCAA tournament in basketball. So, so yeah, again, Going back as many years as you want, go back to the top 12 teams. There's always some team in there with three or four losses. In the format of college football, do we really want to see a three or four loss team or more than that have a right to play for the national championship? Now, I know everybody's go, – no, go ahead. Go ahead. Answer that. I'm just, I'm just going to say, listen, if if somehow to, – to me, it's no different than going 10-2. and two. And and ending the year as a second rate squad, it's you. You still weren't the best team, but you ended up where you ended up. And the only way that team could end up there anyway, they'd actually have to beat 
two squads. They'd have to beat two teams. And if and you're still gonna get the you're still gonna get Molly whopped in the championship game. Maybe. Maybe. We don't know. Uh, okay, so also another again competitively. Also, I've seen people written and fans and otherwise say that this also waters down now the regular season compared to c- compared to what we have as of right now. Because we already, like I just said, we already know that once a team lo- in, in general, a team loses its second game, they're probably going to put themselves out of playing for the national championship unless there's somebody else above you that also has two losses. You know, for example, in 2019, the, the regular season year, there was an undefeated team at the top, another undefeated team behind them, a one-loss team, and then there was a two-loss team and a bunch of two-loss teams behind them. So you'd have to get lucky away to have a bunch of two-loss teams that have a shot to get in there. Now you don't even need, even need that. You can mess around, like say, have three or four losses and get lucky to be the 12th team, and now I'm in the playoff. Now I have a shot. And again, like I said, should that really be the case? Again, I know people might say it's only four losses. Well, out of, out of 13 games, out of 12 games, Compared to somebody who played that same amount of games and lost nothing, but it also depends I, on who I lost those three or four games to. Like, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Because I, clearly, no, no, actually, no, it doesn't. Actually, it doesn't. Jason, because, Jason, Jason. No, let doesn't. me finish. Let me finish. Clearly, it does matter because that's how other two and three lost teams in the SEC has been have been able to leapfrog other teams in the past. Now, keep in mind, there's never been a three-team I, – I could be wrong, but I don't think so. There's never been a three-loss team playing for the national championship in the current format. So, and here's the thing. Okay, so I lost – okay, so let's say this. I, I'm a team that lost three games or four, whatever, and all those losses or three of them were two powerhouse teams. Okay, yeah, those are losses that can be forgiven – what it also tell me is that when it comes to the winning the big game against big teams, you can't do it because you lost three times to them. So, so again, looking at from that perspective, you should be playing for the national championship because you already proven you can't beat this, these teams that, that that matter. So, now now the other thing I'll say about this, and obviously the college football playoff committee has nothing to do with this. Well, well they do in a way because it's based off of conference uh, leaders and school leaders. So, so again, you're spanning this from four to twelve. Now teams are going to, have to play three or four games in this playoff. Are they still going to have that big, that huge, long regular season on top of that? Now they're playing a thirteen game regular season in a conference championship and three or four games in the in the, in the tournament. So now they're playing the same amount of games as a, as an NFL season, basically. So what I'm going into is: is there going to be any type of coordination between the college football playoff committee and NCAA conference leaders to say, hey, now they ha- now they're going to have this format? Are we going to, you know, lessen our regular season games and championship games to make sure these kids aren't, you know, again, these are the college athletes, not NFL. So you see, hopefully you see what I'm getting at there. Um, I just kind of wonder that I'm not saying there should or shouldn't be, but I kind of wonder if there's going to be that coordination because technically they don't have to be. Because even though the college football, uh, college football playoff committee is, you know, the board is run by, again, conference leaders and school leaders and stuff like that, two separate entities. The NCAA has no control over the college football playoff. So they don't have to have any coordination at all. They could just basically say, screw you, the NCAA. You figure it out on your own. We don't have to work with you. And clearly they didn't. Hence why they, they are doing this 12-game thing without any, you know, from what I know or can tell, any consideration of that schedule. So your thoughts on anything I just said when it comes to the competitive, those three competitive aspects that I mentioned? 
I don't think this has this, listen, all this is is just placating these middle teams that are not gonna go undefeated. Because clearly not everyone's gonna go undefeated. You're gonna have more two, you're gonna have more two or three lost teams. And inevitably, you're gonna have the 13th team. Oh my god, we should have been number 12. You should have been number 12. We should have been number 12. We we only got our asses kicked by roast beef state by one extra point than the team number 12. You you're not really changing it. You're still having people griping because they're on the outside looking in. They can't get in the club. Well, and that, that brings up another point that I didn't think about, the slippery slope. Now, maybe with football, there's some limit to that because, again, you're still adding games adding games to the schedule of a rough sport. But now, you, now you've now you already gone way down the slope. You didn't, like I said, you didn't go to six, you didn't go to eight, didn't go to 10, went from four to 12. And I agree with you completely. The 13th team, or whoever, whoever the last team out is, is going to be like, well, wait a minute. And I almost feel like you're going to get more, more scrutiny when it comes to teams that lost four games, three or four games. Now, it's, you know, again, now we fight over teams that lost three or four games. So I agree with you. So I, I do kind of wonder how many years out of this 2026 is it going to be, well, maybe we should start adding 16, making a nice even number to have eight teams on each side, like the NBA playoffs, like the hockey playoffs. You know, you, you feel me on that, dog? We'll have a sweet 16 of just an actual 16 teams. So I do think it's a matter of time before you get 16. It's a matter of time. Because guess what? I know in Division Two, I don't know about Division Three, but in Division Two football, and also, or rather I should say FCS football, guess what they had to decide their champion? A 16-team tournament. Now, obviously, they play less regular season games than, than FBS. So, yeah, I think it's a matter of time before it goes to a 16-team playoff for, the, for major FBS football in, 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 um, in college. So, I think no matter whatever the configuration is, you're gonna, someone is going to be miserable. And clearly, we as a community are also gambling. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure. The, I'm sure the guys in Vegas love this. They love it. I mean, I just mentioned the the CF, uh, CFP is going to make two billion a year. How much extra money is is, is, is Vegas going to make now? Probably more than that two billion. Yeah, guarantee it. Yes, sir. All right. That concludes our segment on the college football playoff expansion. And with that said, we'll wrap up the show. Listening to the Calpart Bros podcast with your host Terrence and Jason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating and review. Five stars, as always, are appreciated. 
You can always send the show feedback or show topics to calfartbros at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at calfartbros.com. You can also reach us on the CPB voicemail at 405-877-2767. That's 405-877-BROS. Who knows? Your message could end up on an episode of this here, very future episode of this here podcast. <laughs> Jason, final thoughts for the people. See, if you start watching your fantasy football draft, you might be able to not mess up the, the ending, sir. Focus on the show. Speaking of the show, folks, we always thank you for listening to us. We appreciate that so much. We enjoy doing this for you. We love having our Cal Park Bros stalkers and Cal Park Bros nerds listen to us because you are part of the Cal Park Bros fam. And if you like what you heard today, thank you for that. And remember, we drop our audio episodes every Thursday, calpartbros.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure you check us out on social media. We drop our video segments there, Facebook and YouTube specifically. Folks, again, we can tell you that you're loving it. We appreciate that. All the comments, all the, all the replies to our reels on Facebook. We love it. We engage with you. You engage with us. It's awesome. But if you want to stay part of the Cal Power Bros fam, there's four things you got to do. You got to remember, when it comes to all things Cal Power Bros, make sure you like us, love us, share us, and follow us. Because if you like us, why wouldn't you? That's right. And with that said, this is Cal Power Bros. Signing off. Peace out, y'all. Like us, love us, share us, follow us. And if you like us, why wouldn't you?